Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchange's World News Roundup for Tuesday, March 14th, 2023. Uh, there are a few anniversaries. On March 13th in the year 624, and these dates are all approximate, uh, this is the anniversary of the Battle of Badr, uh, which was the first uh, battle, uh, very small, maybe skirmish would be a better word, uh, between the followers of Muhammad and the uh, forces of the Meccan Quraysh tribe in their uh, brief war, and well, uh, conflict, let's say, uh, in the Hejaz, uh, Muhammad's followers were victorious in what was more or less a raid on a caravan. Uh, they won the battle. They they did. They were not successful in raiding the caravan, though. The uh, the actual caravan was able to get back to Mecca during the fighting. Uh, but they were victorious in the battle, which gave his followers, obviously, uh, a good deal of momentum and confidence and uh, set the stage for uh, the rest of that conflict. Uh, also on March 13, 1591, the Sultanate of Morocco uh, invaded the Sahelian Songhai Empire, uh, and that battle culminated, or that invasion culminated on this date with a decisive victory in the Battle of Tondibi, uh, which is just north of the city of Gao in modern Mali. Uh, the victorious Moroccan army continued into Gao, uh, the Songhai capital, and sacked the city, followed by the commercially important cities of Timbuktu and uh, Djenei. Uh, the battle shattered the Songhai Empire, which was uh, controlled much of the Sahel at this point, uh, but, uh, and had been around since the 1460s. Uh, after this invasion, after this battle, it broke up into several smaller kingdoms. On March 14, 1978, the Israeli Defense Forces invaded southern Lebanon as far north as the Litani River in the cleverly named Operation Litani. Uh, the invasion was an outgrowth of both the uh, Lebanese Civil War, 1975 to 1990, and the longstanding conflict between Israel and the Palestine Liberation Organization. Its aim was to drive the PLO out of southern Lebanon and strengthen the South Lebanon Army, which is a Christian militia that was supported by the Israelis. Uh, during about a week of fighting, Israeli forces killed somewhere between 1,100 and 2,000 people and displaced tens of thousands more. They withdrew in late March, ostensibly in favor of UN peacekeepers, uh, though uh, in reality it was in favor of the uh, South Lebanon Army, the SLA. Uh, that militia continued to fight with the PLO, uh, which eventually sparked a second and much more impactful Israeli invasion in 1982. On to the news. In the Middle East and Lebanon, the Lebanese pound hit a new low on Tuesday, breaching the 100,000 per U.S. dollar level and continuing on down. Uh, it was trading at uh, 101,500 per dollar last time I checked. For reference, the pound stood at about 60,000 per dollar about six weeks ago, I think, end of January. Uh, Lebanese banks are currently on strike, uh, which means they're mostly blocking withdrawals as they protest court rulings allowing debtors to repay dollar loans at the official 1,507 pound per dollar exchange rate, which obviously is nowhere near uh, its actual value. Uh, elsewhere, the country, of course, has no president and only a caretaker government, which means there's nobody who's empowered to negotiate with international creditors and or the International Monetary Fund. And Lebanon's central bank governor is facing serious corruption allegations whose ramifications could easily spread throughout the political elite. Other than that, everything's fine. Well, okay, not really, but I think that's enough for one day. 
Uh, in Saudi Arabia, uh, Eldar Mamadov at Responsible Statecraft looks at the recent Saudi-Iran diplomatic thaw from the European Union's perspective. Uh, I'll read you a couple of paragraphs here. The announcement of the restoration of diplomatic relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran under Chinese mediation has exposed the limits of the European Union's influence in the Middle East. While the EU was careful to avoid explicitly crediting China, which it has referred to as its, quote, systemic rival, end quote, uh, for the breakthrough, Brussels declared its readiness uh, to build on said breakthrough uh, by engaging, quote, with all actors in the Middle East in a gradual and inclusive approach in full transparency, end quote. While such a statement suggests a pragmatic approach, it begs the question why it was China, an adversary, and not the EU that facilitated the agreement between the two Persian Gulf rivals. Is dealing with the consequences uh, of policies pursued by others the best the EU can do, particularly given the fact that the United States, its main ally, was also excluded from a development that promises to reshape the geopolitical environment that the EU will have to navigate? What does it say about the EU's proclaimed ambition to be a major geopolitical player. Um, This is me again, nothing good, apparently, as it turns out. Uh, I guess adopting the U.S. government's enemies list as your own enemies list doesn't seem to be particularly sound geopolitical strategy, but I digress. In Iran, protesters appear to have returned to the streets of several Iranian cities on Tuesday to mark Charshambe Suri, which is a holiday with Zoroastrian roots. It's part of the cultural celebration of Nowruz, the traditional Iranian New Year uh, that starts uh, with the first of spring. Uh, Videos circulating online purport to show these demonstrations in which people are seen chanting anti-government slogans and burning headscarves, and in at least one case, a picture of Iranian Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei, uh, that's a little awkward. Uh, even the act of celebrating Charshambe Suri is somewhat transgressive. Uh, the Islamic Republic, uh, the government of Iran, has tried to suppress the holiday uh, for many years now due to its pre-Islamic roots. On to Asia and Armenia. Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan on Tuesday renewed his criticisms of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, CSTO, the Russian-led mutual defense bloc that's done little or nothing, at least in Pashinyan's view, to protect member state Armenia from aggression by non-member state Azerbaijan. Speaking to reporters in Yerevan, Pashinyan accused the CSTO of, quote, pulling out of Armenia, whether it wishes so or not. End quote. Uh, this comes after he'd previously opted out of filling one of the bloc's leadership positions and canceled planned CSTO military exercises that were supposed to take place in Armenia later this year. So his argument essentially is that the CSTO abandoned Armenia before his government began abandoning the CSTO. At the same time, Pashinyan played down any specific beef between Armenia and Russia, noting that their relationship has had some uh, what he called objective problems but is not in a state of crisis. Pashinyan is obviously annoyed with the CSTO, and uh, I'm not here to adjudicate uh, whether he's right or wrong, but I would say from his perspective, he's got reason to be annoyed. Uh, But this public break with the bloc is probably also meant to signal that Armenia is uh, looking to strengthen its ties uh, with Western nations that might be more willing uh, to take Yerevan's side against Azerbaijan. And I'm not sure that's a particularly savvy read of current geopolitics, especially given European interest in developing Azerbaijan as an alternative source of natural gas now that Russian gas is verboten. Uh, But in fairness, uh, Pashinyan doesn't exactly have a lot of options right now. 
In Pakistan, two separate attacks targeting census teams in Pakistan's Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province on Monday left at least two police officers dead with at least four more wounded. The Pakistani Taliban was almost certainly responsible. Uh, elsewhere, Pakistani police attempted once again to arrest or possibly just to serve with a court summons. Uh, the reporting isn't entirely clear. Former Prime Minister Imran Khan at his home in Lahore on Tuesday, uh, sparking confrontations with Khan's supporters in that city and apparently in other parts of the country. At least 35 civilians and 12 police officers were wounded in Lahore before authorities gave up their arrest attempt and withdrew. Khan is wanted for failing to appear in court on corruption charges, which he and his Pakistan Tehrika and Saf party insist are politically motivated. Uh, in India, uh, unfortunately, I won't be able to, to explain this very well. There's a video, I, I embedded a, a video uh, from France 24, which is a very interesting report on efforts by, the, uh, by uh, folks in India to reclaim pilfered antiquities from various Western museums. Uh, it, it is an interesting story, and this is something that uh, I, I try to pay attention to, although uh, it, it often falls by the wayside. But I do think stolen heritage is a, is a thing that um, is, is fairly important. So uh, if you get a chance to click uh, to the actual text newsletter tonight or, or in the morning or whenever you're listening to this, uh, please uh, please check that out. Check out the video because I think it's an important story. Uh, okay, moving on uh, to Cambodia. Hun Sen, who's been Cambodia's sole prime minister since 1998 and has effectively run the country since 1985, suggested in a speech on Tuesday that he could retire from that gig as soon as this year following the general election in July. Uh, now, a one-off remark in one speech doesn't necessarily mean anything. Hun Sen had previously talked about working until the next Cambodian election in 2028, so uh, who knows. But whenever he does finally step aside, it's considered highly likely that he will be succeeded by his son, Hun Manet. Uh, in Indonesia... Indonesian politics have been thrown into a bit of chaos in the wake of a Jakarta district court ruling earlier this month that next February's scheduled general election should be postponed until at least March 2025. The case that sparked the ruling was brought by an obscure Indonesian political party that claims authorities unfairly denied its application to participate in that election. The rationale behind the ruling doesn't seem entirely clear, and there are questions as to uh, whether or not it's even within the legal purview of a district court to issue an order like this. Uh, there has been some clamor to allow President Joko Widodo, uh, Jokowi as he's known, to remain in office beyond the end of his second term, but both he and his party have publicly rejected that clamor, and they have similarly rejected the court decision. Uh, delaying the vote, if that's what winds up happening, Happening raises huge constitutional issues, uh, and the Indonesian parliament has now, apparently, according to, to Reuters on Tuesday, uh, started to consider whether it may need to step in to resolve those issues somehow. And to be clear, I have absolutely no idea how it would do that. This is uh, this could be a fairly thorny uh, thing to try to unwind. Assuming the court ruling, of course, is allowed to stand. Uh, in Africa, in Nigeria, the Nigerian Central Bank announced on Tuesday that older 200, 500, and 1,000 uh, Naira banknotes will be maintained as legal tender through at least the end of this year. The bank has been in the midst of replacing those notes, we've talked about this previously in the newsletter, with new banknotes 
brand spanking shiny new ones, but the transition has been pretty badly mismanaged and currency shortages have been the result. It's been estimated that the situation has cost Nigeria billions of dollars, U.S. dollars, uh, in lost economic activity. Uh, The Nigerian Supreme Court essentially ordered this extension in a ruling earlier this month. In Somalia, according to witnesses, an Ashabab car bombing reportedly killed at least nine people and wounded ten others in southern Somalia's Jubaland region on Tuesday. The attack appears to have targeted the governor of the Gedo region in Jubaland, one of one of the uh, administrative regions within that state. Uh, he was among the wounded uh, and apparently had to be airlifted to Mogadishu for treatment. In Europe... Big doings were uh, transpiring uh, (laughs) over the Black Sea on Tuesday when Russian Su-27 fighter jets reportedly intercepted a U.S. MQ-9 Reaper surveillance drone over the Black Sea and yada, 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 the drone crashed. Uh, I know I just yada, yada over the best part, but the truth is there is some dispute over how exactly the drone came to its watery end. Uh, According to U.S. officials, one of the Russian jets made a close pass that apparently went awry and it struck the drone's propeller. This was after the Russians allegedly dumped fuel on the drone for some unspecified reason. Now, according to the Russians, the drone itself made what they called a sharp maneuver and I guess just kind of went out of control. I don't know. They didn't really uh, explain how one thing had to do with anything else. Uh, The former scenario seems more likely than the latter. uh, But either way, this is the kind of thing that probably shouldn't be repeated because let's say if the drone hadn't crashed, but one of the fighter jets had crashed and the pilot had uh, been lost... Uh, This could have led to a very uncomfortable place. Fortunately, it was the unmanned device uh, that crashed. And even at that, uh, there are some fine folks on Twitter wondering why we are not already at World War III or DEFCON 2 or whatever uh, because of this unmanned drone. So uh, best to not maybe do this again, guys. Just just a bit of advice uh, from foreign exchanges. Uh, elsewhere, okay, in Ukraine, Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki, uh, I hope you, I, I didn't butcher that too badly, I'm sorry, my Polish is worse than pretty much any other language that I have, which I don't have any of, uh, but anyway, Mateusz Morawiecki uh, told reporters on Tuesday that his government could send an unspecified number of MiG-29 fighter jets to Ukraine, uh, quote, in the coming four to six weeks, end quote. Uh, Obviously, these are not the more advanced Western aircraft the Ukrainians have been demanding, F-16s above all, of course, but a transfer like this could be a trial run, essentially, in terms of the logistics that would be involved in supplying Ukraine uh, with fighter jets in general. So I think something to maybe keep an eye on. Uh, In Sweden, Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson acknowledged to reporters in Stockholm on Tuesday that Finland is likely to get into NATO before Sweden does. The two countries set out last year to join the club together, going so far as to insist that they had to enter together uh, because uh, their national security depended on it. But Sweden's membership bid has, as you you undoubtedly know, stalled out over a number of Turkish grievances. It isn't likely to come unstalled anytime soon, though the Turkish election in May could, I guess, shake things up depending on how it turns out. Uh, While Finland's bid seems relatively untroubled uh, and therefore... Uh, even Sweden now acknowledging that it, it will probably go ahead first. However, 
there is a potential complication here in the form of Hungary, uh, whose parliament looks like it intends to delay again for what I think will be at least the third time its consideration of both NATO bids, this time until at least March 27th. Unlike Turkey, the Hungarian government really hasn't explained why it hasn't ratified these NATO bids, uh, and so it's really hard to know when or even if it might finally do so. So maybe... Uh, Finland won't get in ahead of Sweden. Maybe neither one of them will get in. Uh, that's always a possibility uh, as well for an organization, that uh, an institution that works on unanimous consent the way NATO does. Uh, on to France, where protests and strikes are continuing to roil that country as the, a seemingly pretty large portion of the French population. I think polling has it somewhere around 70% continues to express strong opposition to President Emmanuel Macron's desire to raise the French retirement age. These demonstrations have been going on for weeks now with absolutely nothing to indicate that they're hampering Macron in any way. Indeed, his euphemistically termed pension reform legislation is likely to win final legislative approval as soon as Thursday. Uh, on to the Americas in Honduras. Uh, President Xiomara Castro declared via Twitter on Tuesday that her government will begin the process of transferring diplomatic recognition from Taipei to Beijing. Castro talked about doing this during the 2021 presidential campaign, but later downplayed the idea, possibly to avoid backlash from Washington. Her decision will, to go ahead with it now will leave Taiwan with only 13 remaining states that still recognize it diplomatically. Uh, although we did mention, I think, last week that Micronesia might switch in the other direction from Beijing to Taipei, assuming Taipei uh, pays up. Uh, and there is still the potential for some kind of U.S. backlash here. Uh, I think maybe a, a, you know some somewhat high potential uh, for some kind of backlash, but it remains to be seen. Uh, in El Salvador, polling indicates that President Nayib Bukele uh, is the prohibitive favorite to win next year's presidential election, uh, even though he's not really supposed to run in it on account of pesky little technicalities like the law and the Salvadoran constitution. He is going to run. Uh, the Salvadoran Supreme Court has already rubber-stamped his decision, so there's no legal authority that's going to stop him, and he's apparently got 68% support against 13% opposition in a survey conducted last month for the newspaper La Prensa Grafica. So I think he's, he's sitting pretty. Uh, and finally, uh, on to the United States, where Spencer Ackerman at Forever Wars uh, notes that the Saudi-Iran diplomatic thaw undermines U.S. Middle East policy, and not just because of China's involvement. I'll just read you the first two paragraphs of his newsletter. Uh, a measured step to reduce hostilities between Middle Eastern belligerents Saudi Arabia and Iran took shape on Friday. With apologies to the Abraham Accords, and we'll turn to them in a minute, this looks like the most significant detente in the region since Oslo in 1993. And while it might turn out to be the false dawn that Oslo was, the pact was brokered by China, creating a breakout moment for Chinese diplomatic power in the Middle East and stunning a sidelined United States. Everyone familiar with negotiations between rival powers understands that signing an accord does not trump long-standing patterns of hostility. At the same time, the American shock is justified. The China-brokered detente exposed not only the United States' irrelevance to a reduction of hostilities, but also how the United States couldn't have produced it, as, the Middle Eastern, as its Middle Eastern strategy for roughly a decade has relied upon Saudi-Iranian hostilities. China has now called into question the basis for that strategy, all while Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman enjoys one of his favorite pastimes making Joe Biden eat shit. Uh, on that note, uh, thanks as always for reading and or listening to the newsletter. Uh, thanks to those of you who are foreign exchanges subscribers, especially those of you who are paid 
foreign exchanges subscribers and make this newsletter possible. If you are not a paid foreign exchanges subscriber, I would uh, implore you to please consider it uh, because you could be the thing standing between this newsletter continuing on and not continuing on. Uh, that's that's how important it is to to have subscriber support. Unfortunately, I cannot do this uh, this newsletter uh, without without you guys. So please consider it. Uh, and uh, on that note, until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye bye.